and inside uh, your, your, your service sheets is uh, this outline here of, uh, as we continue this series asking the question, what does God expect of us? And we've been asking that in relation to some of the key ethical issues of our age and today we come to the issue of the Christian and social action. And so as you're finding that, and it's worth opening Mark 1 and 2 as well uh, that was read out for us earlier, or part of it was uh, by Dave, and it's on page 1002 of the Church Bibles, Mark 1 and 2. So as we come to the, the issue of the Christian and social action, let me ask the question direct at the start. In the face of huge and seemingly unrelenting needs around our globe and more locally in our city as well, how are we meant to respond? What does God expect us to do? What does God expect of us as a Christian community and as individual Christians in a city like Sheffield? A city that is broken in so many ways. What action does he expect of us when we come across the growing problem of long-term unemployment, of the mental health crisis in this city? What does he expect of us when it comes to the cycles of family abuse that are rife throughout this city? And what does he expect of us as many in our city are now crippled with debt or addiction or loneliness? What does God expect of us? And then beyond our city, beyond even our nation, as we look at the profound and desperate needs of the world around us, what would God have us do? Uh, How does he expect us to respond to issues of disease and lack of sanitation and starvation and injustice and civil war and the list goes on, doesn't it? In a world like ours, as broken as it is in so many places, both globally and locally, what social action does God expect of his people? Well, let me say, I think if you want to know what God expects of you, then see how he acts in a world like ours. Uh, See what happens when God confronts a world as broken as ours. See what happens when he steps onto this earth. Uh, See that so that you may follow him. And to do that, we're going to uh, take a walk around Galilee with Jesus of Nazareth, God's son, to see what God does when he confronts our world. And so, as I said, it's worth having Mark 1 and 2. That's where we're going to see our God confront this world. And as our passage begins in verse 14, you see Jesus set his agenda for life for a follower of Jesus in this world. You see it there in verse 14. He went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. When Jesus comes to a broken world, he he doesn't come with a new philosophy or a new plan or policy, even a new pill. He comes to bring good news. Life-changing, life-saving news, news of peace. The king has arrived. Repent and believe. He comes uh, not just to tinker at the edges of brokenness, he comes to not only proclaim this kingdom but to deliver it, to see that kingdom, the kingdom of God, break in to a broken world. So let's follow him and see how he does it. And scene one, which starts in Mark 1, 21. As the scene opens uh, in verse 21, it's the Sabbath day, a day that was precious to God's people, a day when they looked forward to the day when God would bring this peace Not just a little bit of peace, not just at the end of hostilities, but whole peace, restored relationships, restored health, restored life, all of it. God had promised that day and so each Sabbath they would remember that. And on this Sabbath Jesus is in the synagogue teaching about 
the year of the Lord's favour, Luke 4 tells us, teaching us of the day of salvation that has now arrived, the day that his kingdom broke into the kingdom of this world. And you see there, they're amazed at his message. This is no vague philosophy. This is not a a hunch. This is the king's decree. Repent and believe. The time has come. And as Jesus proclaims this news, in the midst of his words, he confronts the debilitating effects of living in a world far from peace. Before him stands a a demon-possessed man, a man in this culture who is as good as dead. And we're told that the demon knows who Jesus is. He knows why he's come. He's come to destroy evil. He's come to destroy the ravages of sin, but not just the symptoms of it, the whole system. And so Jesus commands this demon, quiet, come out. And he does. Again, the crowds around him are amazed. They've never heard, uh, do you see it there, teaching like this in verse 27. It's remarkable, that isn't it? He's just performed this amazing miracle and the thing that strikes him is what he is saying. This talk of this kingdom. Could Jesus really bring this kingdom about one miracle at a time? Is he just going to sweep across Galilee and across Jerusalem and across Israel and then the world bringing healing? Well, at this point, Jesus and his disciples leave the synagogue and head to Simon's home and again, death is there, brokenness is there. Simon's mother-in-law is sick in bed with a fever and in this culture you put people in bed when it was the last moments. She is very near death. But Jesus has complete authority even in a moment like this and he restores her to full health. And at this point, as news of these two miracles starts to spread, things really take off. Do you see it there in verse 32? Amazing scene. Here they are in Simon's house and that evening as sunset came the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon possessed the whole town gathered at the door imagine that scene this this little house and the entire town is crowded just outside the door and Jesus heals many and drove out many demons amazing scene and yet look what Jesus does firstly he refuses again to let the demon speak of who he is and what he is doing why not Why not get the word out? Surely if this is God's plan to bring healing one after another after another, why not spread the word? But he wants the opposite. And then this, early the next morning, he goes away alone, isolated, to pray. It's no wonder we're told that the next morning Simon and the others search for him and when they find him they say, everyone's looking for you. You should be amongst them. You should be right back where the people are, where the need is. Don't you care, as they'll say later in Mark's Gospel. And then he gets stranger still. Do you see his response in verse 38? Well, let's go then. Where? Back? Back to, back to the village? No. Somewhere else, away from the crowds. Somewhere where I can proclaim the good news of God, for that is why I have come. Verse 38. That's why he's come. These miracles are but a hint, but a whisper of what he is doing in this world. He knows that the brokenness is all around him, but he knows it is a symptom of a much bigger problem, a disease, the disease of broken relationship with God, the disease of sin. He's come for that. He's come for the big prize. And so scene one ends with him having to leave and go elsewhere. And so scene two begins in verse 39 with him travelling throughout Galilee proclaiming God's kingdom. 
And again, he is confronted by the brokenness of the world. Before him is a pitiful man with leprosy. Again, the living dead in this culture, begging to be made clean. But Jesus has just told us in verse 38, this is not why he's come, what will he do? Well, he looks at this man and we're told he is filled with compassion. It's such a wonderful phrase. It's a phrase that speaks of the very guts of God churned up. And so he touches this man and says, of course I am willing, be clean. You see, God's very nature is compassion. It is his constant response to a broken world like ours. You see it all the way back in Genesis 6. As he looks over this world, he weeps, he grieves. You trace your way through the scriptures and you see this response again and again. But his compassion is so much more profound than ours, so much more long-lasting. His compassion is for the whole person in the context of eternity. You search the scriptures and you see God respond with compassion and you see what happens when he feels compassion. It is amazing. He's moved with compassion for those trapped in idolatry and he brings rescue. He's moved uh, with compassion for those who act unfaithfully and he brings forgiveness. He's moved by the plight of the poor and he brings salvation. He's moved by those who are steeped in sin and so he takes it away. He's moved by the overwhelming physical needs of a world like ours and so he teaches them. And then I think most remarkably, Titus 3, God is moved with compassion for those who are enslaved by sin. So moved is he that his compassion becomes flesh incarnate. We're told in Titus 3 that he, Jesus, who is compassion, saved us from sin. See, our world is full of compassion. Our world is full of compassionate acts, well-meaning acts, but they are impotent acts, just tending to symptoms while the cancer of sin rages all around us. Jesus has come not for the symptoms. He has come to heal the disease. He has come to heal the whole person for eternity. But all around him, as he, wherever he goes, are desperate, hungry people wanting more wanting their friends healed and do you blame them, wanting the evil structures of Rome overwhelmed. And so by the end of chapter 2, as the scene ends, Jesus is once again retreating to the wilderness, retreating literally to the lonely places. And so scene 3, chapter 2. Once again, I suspect we're back at Simon's house and once more there's another massive crowd at the door. Can you blame them? Do you see Jesus' response to this overwhelming need in Mark 2, verse 2? He proclaims the gospel. But amongst the crowd are four friends who have longed for this moment, four friends who have their paralytic friend with them and they are desperate to reach Jesus, so desperate that they have to break in through the roof. And so this broken man is lowered before the one they know can heal him. Jesus looks at the friends, he looks at this man lying on the mat and he sees desperate, wholehearted faith. Did you see his response in verse 5? It's somewhat unexpected. Here is this broken, paralytic man and what does he say to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. Seems a bit inappropriate, doesn't it? A, a bit almost uh, offensive. That's not his problem. Can't you see his problem? As far as Jesus is concerned, this is the very heart of the matter. 
He's not the only one to see that either. The teachers of the law who are watching this know that only God can forgive sins. This is a big moment. This is why Jesus has come. His announcement here of forgiveness is recognition that this man cannot be made whole until the root problem is dealt with. And so Jesus pushes the teachers of the law on this. He says, which do you think is easier for me to do, heal or forgive? I'm not tinkering at the edges of brokenness here, says Jesus. I I come not just to heal bodies, but bodies and souls. Because he knows that the great need that each man has, even this paralytic, is that he lives on the very edge of eternity, the very edge. And his problem is not just that his body will soon die, but then God will raise up that body and throw both body and soul into hell. And so he says, which is easier? Which is more important? To help this man walk or to forgive him? Such that he is reconciled to the God who is about to judge him. Jesus comes to proclaim news of God's kingdom breaking into a broken world, breaking into death and bringing life, breaking into sin and bringing forgiveness. God is about making all things new. He comes, as we're told in Mark 10, to suffer himself. He comes to take in, in his own body the brokenness of this world, to die as a ransom for many to rise so that he may say of you and and each one who would come to him, arise, not just take up your mat and walk, but arise from death itself. Arise free from judgment. Arise at peace with the God who made you. That's his social action. And so there is a very rapid trip through Mark 1 and 2 as we see God confront a world like ours and see what he does. That's how he responds and that's how he expects us to respond as we follow him. And so as you see there on your outline, let me just mention three things I think that we need to pick up from this, three things that God expects of us as his people, as his followers. First is we need to remember that we are a people of hope. At the moment you and I live in an old system, an old world, an old order one that keeps breaking down no matter what we do, no matter how much we fix things, it it just keeps breaking. And we see that everywhere as Jesus did all around Galilee and like him we are meant to act. We are to be moved by that brokenness. But not moved to act in such a way as we're really just sewing a patch on an old garment. And Jesus says later in Mark, he says, I didn't come to sew a patch on, on an old world. He has come to make all things new. And when he does, like an old wineskin, this old broken world will be replaced by one that is very good. One that 2 Peter 3 describes as the home of righteousness, the home of peace, of justice, of health, of no more sickness, no more death. He expects us to be people of hope. He expects us to be people who are in the business of seeing others there on that day. And so secondly, he expects us to be people of good news You saw it there in Mark 1.14 as Jesus set the agenda for this world. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. Our agenda must be his. We must hold our nerve and be confident that his plan is the only plan. In the end, social action is about enacting change that is temporary and brief. Gospel proclamation is about change that will last into eternity. That's why he came and that's why he sends us into his world. 
And let me say at this point, I'm not advocating here some sort of dualism where material things, physical things don't matter, only the spiritual matters. But just because the physical and spiritual belong together does not mean that the temporal and eternal are as important as each other. I must remember that my neighbour stands guilty before a holy God who will judge him, both body and soul. If my compassion for him stops short of that need, it is not compassion at all. Consider this quote by uh, Tim Chester in his book Good News for the Poor. He writes this. I remember hearing a a Christian who had worked among the famine victims of the Biafra conflict in Nigeria in the 1960s. He spoke of their greatest concern as they faced death was to be told of life after death. People often say rather glibly that hungry stomachs don't have ears. But the hungry stomachs of the Biafrans were all ears to the good news in the face of death. For me to act compassionately toward a neighbour, any act must have at its heart the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, the one who has conquered death. In the end, people are saved by the message of the cross, 1 Corinthians tells us, not just a life shaped by it. But it is a message that can be proclaimed in many theatres, a pulpit, a home, a hut, a hospital, a flood relief centre, an engineering company, a soup wagon, a pregnancy support centre, a school, a holiday centre, a university, the possibilities are endless. Such is the need. And let me also say, and this is crucial to hear, that in each situation that we are proclaiming the gospel, we will be proclaiming it in relationships with others of great need where those relationships will be complex. And so while proclamation of the gospel is going to be central, that does not mean that we won't meet other needs. Of course we will. In fact, where such needs are within my capacity to meet, other person-centred love demands I do. To not do that is to deny who I am as a Christian. And so Christian work is going to be complex. It's messy. It will be centred on the cross, centred on the message of the crucified man. It must be but it will be adorned with practical expressions of love that lead us to speak of him. It's a messy work, a a tricky work, a work that takes careful planning. What does it look like in practice? Well, hopefully many of you have seen it in practice, but let me encourage you to, if you don't know about the organisation already, to take the time to hear about an organisation like Tear Fund, who I think are doing this work in situations where the needs are immense. And yet they are meeting those needs by partnering with local churches whose great passion is to proclaim the gospel to those whom they come in contact with. And I've asked Jenny Coleman, who's one of the Tear Fund reps for our church, just to come up briefly and tell us a bit about the work of Tear Fund. Thanks, Jenny. Yes, as Andrew says, social uh, social justice requires action as well as words. And I believe that Tearfund, as an evangelical Christian relief and development organisation, is the best way for us to take that forward, to help people who are worse off for our, than ourselves for whatever reason. The T in the Tearfund logo is in the shape of a cross. And that's because the gospel is at the heart of everything that we do. Tearfund, as Andrew says, works through local church partners. They're part of the local community, like we're part of the community here in Fullwood. They know the needs, they know the people, they know the culture. Um, And I'm just going to give you one example from the latest issue of Tear Times about Cambodia. 
Um, there are there's a village in Cambodia. There's a family featured there. The rains only come once a year, and the rice only grows when the rain is plentiful. So families like this, with a small plot of land, can only grow enough rice to feed themselves for six months of the year. So the Tier Fund Partner is called the Holistic Development Organisation. Um, what did they do? They built a secure shed on stilts and they put it in the garden of the local pastor and they provided rice to kickstart a rice bank. So when these families have got rice, they put it in, and when they haven't, they can get it out. They also loaned them chickens and pigs so they could breed animals, and they also gave them uh, seeds for growing crops. So now, in a village where one in five children will die from malnutrition, the family have animals to breed from, they have crops to eat and sell, and they have rice to eat. But, and that's the thing about Tier Fund, it's not just about ensuring that people are fed. Many families in this village and the others around it have come to faith in the last few years. And the pastor says, why should they leave their Buddhist, big, um, you know, their Buddhist roots to turn to Christianity? And he says, the love and concern of the church and the work of this Tier Fund partner brings hope and causes a great impact. This local church is part of a worldwide uh, network of local churches who, um, and this example shows us how Tier Fund are trying to transform the, the materially and spiritually through the local church and through a partnership with people like us, churches like ours. When I look at these people and I think of my own family, I thank God for his provision of the local church. Jesus calls us to be his hands in the world today. And one way of part of doing that is to partner with Tier Fund. So you can take Tier Times, you can read the articles, you know then what to pray for. You can campaign, we can try and change the government by the things that we do. They need to know that Christians care about what happens in the world. And we can give money when we've got it. People like this family are extremely hard working. They want to, stand, they want to look after themselves, but they need us to stand shoulder to shoulder with them. And so if you'd like to join this partnership and you don't already subscribe to Tier Times and you don't know about Tier Fund, I'll be over there after the service. Please come and speak to me. Thanks. Thank you, Jenny. Let me encourage you to do that. Go over and have a look at uh, the work that's being done. Amazing work of meeting uh, the needs of the whole person in the context of eternity. Some 20 families, uh, I was reading that story that uh, Jenny was uh, uh, reading for us there, 20 families in that village have come, come to the Lord in recent years. Wonderful. Uh, we are people of hope, we are people of good news, finally we are people who do good. Uh, as we close out, let me say, I wonder if we did a survey right now about our church, Christchurch Forward, and I asked you this question, what would you say our problem is, our weakness is? Uh, not enough evangelism or not enough practical expressions of love? Uh, what's our weakness? Not enough evangelism, not enough practical expressions of love? And while you're mentally logging your answer to that question away, let me ask a more direct one. What's your weakness? Not enough evangelism or not enough practical expressions of love? I ask you that because we together are Christchurch forward, so it's essentially the same question. Now let me take a guess at the survey results. My guess is that more of us would say our weakness is not enough practical expressions of love. That's Christchurch forward's weakness. But let me suggest an alternative answer. What's our weakness? Well, it's both of them. 
Our problem is actually more fundamental than our practice. Our problem is one of the heart. Our problem is that we're theoretical social activists. We exercise armchair compassion. We're moved by the immense needs around us in our city and around the globe, but not enough to get out of the chair. We observe needs, we read needs, we discuss them. Our problem is compassion for us is a spectator sport. And that is a great problem when you come to something like the parable of the Good Samaritan and you see where we fit into that picture. As we see our neighbour in great need, our problem is not that we're telling him the gospel too much or meeting too many of his practical needs. Our problem is we're, we're on the other side of the road. Which says something about our hearts. Armchair compassion is useless. Imagine if God's compassion was like that. An armchair compassion, a throne room compassion. Consider our desperate situation. As for you, you were dead in your sins. Armchair compassion is useless. God's compassion, it doesn't just move his guts and leave him feeling uncomfortable. It moves him into the fray, into this broken world. It moves him, as Philippians 2 tells us, that although being in very nature God, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. You who have been renewed in his image must be moved likewise. Romans 13 says, in fact, in verse 14, if you want to love your neighbour, you must put on Christ. And if we did, I suspect as we entered the fray, the, the debate as to whether we're too evangelistic or too focused on temporal needs would fade into the background. That's a debate for spectators. If you're in the fray, you just get on with it. And if in the fray, if we're clothed with Christ, having his mind for our neighbour, we'll have no doubt what to do. As opportunity to do good comes before us in all the complex messiness of relationships, we will meet all sorts of needs as we have opportunity. That's who we are. But his mind, his compassion will burn in our guts such that we would know that our neighbour is on the edge of eternity and he will soon bow the knee before that judge. That will grip us because God did not ordain the cross of his son or create hell in order to communicate to me or to you my neighbour's plight is insignificant. The death of his son and the coming judgment are his megaphone to me as I meet my neighbour that my God is infinitely holy, that sin is infinitely offensive, that his wrath is infinitely just and therefore his gospel of grace is infinitely precious because my neighbour's brief life is about to move quickly into everlasting joy or everlasting pain. And so I am compelled by the love of my God for my neighbour not to stop at his immediate temporal needs nor hope that he might just ask me about the gospel as if we're playing charades. No, compelled by the love of God, I will beg, I will plead my neighbour to be reconciled to his God for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Let's pray together.